This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. My brother was in the playground, which was on Pacific Street um, between... Um, Third Avenue and Nevins, and he was playing with um, his friend Sankey Lee, who's um, Spike Lee's um, brother, and th- they were they were by themselves. And I remember the two of them coming home and like crying. And they told my mother we were in the playground, and these little boys stole our money. And my mother's like, oh, my God. And she's like, Lynn, you go back to that playground and you get their money. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, okay, but that was the, that's the role I occupied. I had to do those things. Yeah. And so on this particular day, you know, I mustered all the, the strength that I had. And I sort of marched over to that playground. And I said to my brother and Sankey, it's like, who is the little kid who took your money? I'm like, was it that one? Was it that one? And they're finally like, it was him. And so I walked over to that, that little kid. And I'm like, you took my little brother's money and I want it back. And he refused. And then I pried his little fingers open. And inside of his hand was um, one in five dollar Monopoly money. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't real bills. <laughs> but I remember it's like pink and white. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I went through all of this for Monopoly money. Where did you grow up? Is a question we're all asked a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there. Before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. My guest is the playwright Lynn Nottage, one of the most important voices writing for the stage and screen today. In fact, Lynn is the very first woman ever to win not one, but two Pulitzer Prizes for drama. One was for her play Ruined, which she set in and around a bar and brothel in wartime Congo. And the other was for Sweat, which completely captured the hollowing out of a factory town in Pennsylvania in our current deindustrializing landscape. In both cases, Lynn opens our eyes and ears to characters in private, intimate spaces where and how real people really talk. It's a process that began for her in her hometown of New York City, where she was a little girl growing up in the Borum Hill section of pre-gentrified Brooklyn. Now on the surface, she says, Borum Hill was the kind of neighborhood where people would pass through to get to other neighborhoods. This is the 1970s. But to Lynn, it was the setting for her story, starting on her block and the brownstone where her parents, Wally and Ruby Nottage, raised her and her brother and hosted family, friends, artists, and activists. There was always a lot of noise in the house, filled with people, especially in the kitchen. Now, Lynn still lives in that very house today, a wife, mother, professor, and very busy playwright, surrounded by the memories and materials of her ancestors. And it was from that very space that she spoke to me on a snowy morning about the sights, sounds, and voices of her coming-of-age years in Brooklyn. On my particular block, which is Dean Street, which was made famous in Jonathan Lethem's book, Fortress of Solitude, when I was growing up, it was dominated by boarding houses. You know, there was a sprinkling of communes, Lots of, of kids were on the block. Um, it was at a time when there still was a bus that 
passed down. And as a result, there weren't a lot of cars so that we on weekends could flood out of our houses and like actually play in the street. You know, we'd play, you know, Mm. capture the flag and kick the can and all of those wonderful um, um, games that you played when when you were young. And in terms of the soundtrack of the neighborhood, and I don't know whether this memory is accurate, but I remember that there was always salsa music that was like blaring from boomboxes or open windows. And I remember at night at one of the um, boarding houses, there were men who would form this drum circle and they'd play the congas and the bongos and, and sing. It just always felt like there was a lot of ambient, festive sound in the community. It was really very uh, al- alive. felt vibrant um our life centered around my, the the table in my kitchen which was this v- vibrantly colored formica table it was orange it was bright orange and it's still there and and i look at it and it's this still, is 1970s this is 1970s and it seems like such an odd and wonderful um choice but mm-hmm. it's this artifact that has remained it's like the one artifact of my childhood that's completely intact is this formica table but my mother who it's still there uh, it's still there it's still the for my oh, ta- table is still very much there my mm-hmm. my do- daughter and her partner are, are living down in that space and every once in a while I go and visit that table which they hate <laughs> but I have this real fondness <laughs> and connection too just because of what it represents yeah. you know it was this communal space where my mother who was a school teacher um, after work, she and her friends would gather and they drink this wine. There's like always um, a jug, like a half ga- gallon of Mandavi wine that was sitting just beneath the table. And, you know, they do their best to finish it every single day. And mm-hmm. my mother would get a, a new one. <laughs> and her, her friends were like educators like herself and, and civil servants and, you know, a sprinkling of politicians and activists. And I just really as a kid, admired sort of the passion and this genuine commitment that they had to each other. And my grandmother, also after work, you know, she was this very petite woman. She was, you know, between some, somewhere between 4'10 and 4'11, depending on um, how she liked to describe herself. And she'd wander this in. This is your mother's mother? This is my mother's mother, my mother's mother. Yeah. Who lived in... in Newton. Yeah, Waple Newton, who lived in Crown Heights, but every single day she'd come and she'd spend time with us. It felt very much like a meeting space for women. Where were you in the room and sort of what what was piquing your curiosity when you were listening to these voices? Um, Often I would be at the Orange for Micah table, but there was um, a dining room table that was also in the room. And more often I would sit there and do my, my, my homework because it was, it, there was a little distance between me, me and them. And, but I loved um, eavesdropping and, um, and listening to what they ha- had to say. You know, my, my mother was an enormous gossip, but that didn't mean that she didn't have friends who were 
weren't gossips. I mean, they, they were, you know, I, I remember one of her friends, um, Fanny Dickerson, who was a best friend, and Fanny was uh, also a school teacher, and she was from the South and had this wonderful accent, and she just loved to gossip. <laughs> and about about school and about the- about everything. I mean, it's uh, you know they you know they they it's 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 what what folks do. It's you 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 mm-hmm. gossip about what's happening at your schools. You gossip about what's happening on in your neighborhood. You gossip about um, your your friend circle. And and Fanny just was this uh, this beautiful gregarious um, person whose voice to this day still resonates in my head. You know, I am a, a playwright. And I often think that um, the way in which I write dialogue really comes from um, active listening and and just how colorful the language was in my mother's circle. You know, they were, they, you know my, my grandmother was a great raconteur, you know, and so often mm. after a few glasses of wine, you know, she would have the floor and she could just tell stories in the most beautiful rapturous way and I really think that that um in in some respects that my grandmother's art of storytelling is the foundation for my art practice and Lynn if you could walk downstairs to that that Formica countertop and be be in 1970 Mm -hmm. or 1971 or 72 what would you most want to know in other words that you 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 can't know now but you wish you could go back and say I figure something out what what do you most what would you most want to listen for or find out that you that's now gone? You know, I think that one of the things that I would want to know is more about the emotional reality of my family because that's something as children that we're not as attuned to is what you know what was my mother going through in that moment when there was so much. Um, social upheaval. You know, mm-hmm. it was the midst of the feminist movement, the Black Power movement, and I just wouldn't want to know um, where her heart was. And I think the same is true for my father as well. Is what was it, what yeah. were their yeah what were their relationships to the moment? And are there is there is there a particularly vivid story, Lynn, when you think about those times? For example, your grandmother speaking or Fanny, that you held on to and that you really you you can tell now that you that just stuck with you and and you that it's lodged deep inside of you. You know, there are a few things um, that stay with me. For um, Aunt Fanny, she often spoke about her life down south and the fact that before she moved to New York and um, became a teacher, is that she actually lived on a farm, um, a sh- um, her family was sharecroppers, and they picked cotton. And for whatever reason, just the notion of this woman who was in this urban setting being connected to the land in that way and something that felt like a very ancient, um, painful practice, um, that, that story has, still resonates. And my, my grandmother, um, sh- she was very social. You know, she was a club joiner you know she was a zeta which is a a sorority and i I, Mm -hmm. often her stories had to do with people she encountered you know she she was born here but her mother was born in 
in Barbados. And one of her favorite things to do was reminisce about the trips that she took back to the old island and sort of the differences that she experienced of being, you know, a New Yorker with this this Brooklyn accent who was plopped in the middle of this very rural community in Barbados. And and she just loved Mm -hmm. conversation. And a lot of times it, it had to do with what was happening in the world, and particularly for my mother, who was an activist, you know, and a community organizer. And I, I think as I got older, and I was really able to do much more active listening, what I realized that often what they were talking about was was community organizing, and and mm. you know boycotts. You know, I remember at yeah. some point that they decided that they were all going to boycott the Rolling Stones because of. Um, language that they had on their album that they felt was racist and misogynist and you know (laughs) and um, my mother at some point decided that she was going to um, run for office and she did she became the county committee person and her circle began to shift you know went from school teachers and and her friends and it became um, more activists and and community organizers and politicians. And those conversations took on a real different kind of urgency and tenor. Yeah, my, my wife grew up in Carroll Gardens. So, I mean, I guess back then it was all called South Brooklyn. Um, the neighborhoods really weren't named, although I think Borum Hill was named right around the time you were born in the yeah. 60s yeah. as a neighborhood. Right. Um, but my father-in-law, who was a longshoreman and then kind of entered the court system and worked in the courts in Brooklyn, he talked about just how powerful the district le- district leaders were in Brooklyn. Meet Esposito and people like that. I mean, they, they really held a lot of sway. Yeah, my mother was a district leader um, um, for a, a period of, of time, and she took the position quite... Um, seriously, and the district leaders at that time were, were also community organizers, and many of the politicians looked to them to help um, communicate with the constituency. But also, um, when they were running for election, they really needed the support of these people who were closer to the ground. these voices around you that you're imbibing and then become part of you um, but also you have a voice too and from a very young age I think five you've said you and your brother Aaron your little brother Aaron would perform plays yes. little skits uh, for your parents and their friends yes. so sort of thinking about those voices in the house can you give us the production notes if you will I think that on some level I've always was writing plays and those first plays were conjured in the living room of my my house and I wrote plays for myself where I was the protagonist and often my brother who was three years younger than me, Aaron, was the the villain. <laughs> and um, we have an interior um, staircase which is somewhat unusual in a brownstone. So we have steps that come right into the living room and um, chances are when we were performing the pieces we just make a grand descent down those steps into the living room space. And generally the performance would take place at the um, base of the steps. And inevitably my brother and I would be dressed in our colorful pajamas or our bathrobes. And we'd perform <laughs> some sort of sketch that involved a princess and a villain. Or, um, <laughs> you know, that would last. Some variation. Yeah, a theme which would last 
anywhere from five to ten minutes until my mother would say enough. <laughs> and that so was, was the, the hook. Yeah, that bit. was the hook. She'd be like enough, or there would be applause at some point that the adults all agreed upon, <laughs> and we would be ushered back up the steps and told that children should not be seen or heard. <laughs> I'm picturing like the kids in The Sound of Music, you know, and they say goodnight or the Cosby show where they perform on the staircase. Like, right. I'm trying to, if only we were picture these. That, that charming and talented. <laughs> Our performances <laughs> were not as delightful as the Von Trapp family singers. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you get credit for originality. Like it doesn't did. sound like you were just mimicking something. You were actually creating the stories. Yeah, we were creating. We they were, weren't we're, just like an adaptation of something. You know, s- somewhere I... I in, in, in the house, there are cassette tapes of some of these early attempts at, at, at dra- right? drama. Wow. Yeah, I have to figure out where they are. Because I remember getting a, a, a tape recorder when I was young, and I became obsessed with um, not just recording my own thoughts, but I was also reco- recording my parents' dinner party conversations. And, and I... Um, That's amazing. Isn't that am- so it's you ama- it's document- amazing? You were and documenting. I, my, my, I used to go around my parents' dinner table when they had um, parties. And I just in my head, I suddenly had an image of all of those beautiful people um, surrounding the table. And there was one man in particular, Paco, who was from Ponce, Puerto Rico, who just had the most resonant, deep, beautiful voice. And I loved um, um, taking the microphone and having him say, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> 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 Yeah, have you gone back and listened to them? I, I, I haven't. I'm so afraid to play those tapes because of the fragility mm. of, of the, the tape material. And, and I, I have to figure out where I can get them um, trans- transferred so that, so that I can listen. And, and you know, I use that, that um, tape player to play music beneath some of our performances. I mean, they were very well thought through and we memorized our lines and we really fully committed to our performances. That is awesome. And your, your brother, whose little brother, did he have much choice in this or was he on board with you and in, 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 in sort of... You know, it's, it's interesting because I think my, my brother right now is a Brooklyn DA, which, mm-hmm. as you know, um, is very performative. I mean, the courtroom is a theater a different kind of theater space. And so I think underneath it all, there's part of him that is really still an actor. And so he was always an incredibly willing participant. I never had to like um, twist his arm or nudge him. It's like, here's your part. This is what you say. And we go on now. in a generation where kids were free-range chickens you know <laughs> it's like the door was opened you were given a little shove and you went outside and and as um we lived very much um outdoors um i was a mm-hmm. i was a bookish kid and so you know there and, and i think the part of the reason i became a playwright is that 
I'm an introvert extrovert, which I think is the definition of playwriting is that people who spend a lot of time sort of writing, but then we really need community to complete our task. Yeah, and, and so, if, and yep. see, you know, we're, we're collaborators by nature. And I think that as a kid, that's fundamentally who I was, is that I loved to read books. I loved my time in my room. But then inevitably there was a moment. You had your own room. I had my own room. Inevitably, inevitably there was a moment where I just wanted to be outside. And I was very, very fortunate that our yard was the nexus point for all the kids on the block. It was concrete. It was open. It was almost in the middle of the block. And so the kids who lived on that side would come in, in, in the kids on the other side would come and they'd all meet. And, and generally the kids played on their side of the block, but my, my yard was the one place where everyone could come together and play Skelly and Stupol and double, uh, double yeah. Dutch. And it, it just was this really beautiful, um, a, a space that um, I spent a lot of my time in. But th- that said, there were pl- pl- there were playgrounds in the the community that I would um, go to, and you still had old ladies with pillows who would sit in their windows. And <laughs> if you were misbehaving, they'd say, you know, Lynn, or more often it was my brothers, but Aaron, stop doing that, and they'd report it back to your mother. <laughs> Or, you know, if they saw you wandering someplace where you're not supposed to be, they'd be like, I'm going to tell your mother. And so you felt like there were really <laughs> eyes and ears within the community mm-hmm. that were taking care of all of us. And well, the, the fascinating thing about the architecture of the brownstone is the stoop, which is designed in some way like risers for an audience to sit on. Yes. <laughs> and yes. so, you'd, you know, you sit on those steps and you'd watch life go by, you know, whether it was life at your yard or whether it was life that was flowing up and down um, your, your s- streets. And uh, the stoops were communal spaces. It's, it's where, you know, when you were very young, you could sit and your parents could see you. But as you got older um, and you're teenagers, it's a place where you, you'd hang out. And you could, yeah. you know, you'd sit on the stoops until the, the wee hours of the morning, just um, talking to, to friends and, 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 and ga- gathering. But, you know, the stoop was also a place where you, we played stoop ball. And I remember um, using it in different ways. Um, back then, you had to be much more imaginative in the games that you played because you didn't have all these electronics and, and iPad and Game Boys and all the things that kids mm-hmm. are playing with now. And so things like um, a refrigerator box could give us at least two weeks of incredible fun. And I remember that on the stoop is that we'd ride the, uh, ride the refrigerator box down the stoop. And, you, know, <laughs> so, so, wow. I, you know, and then we could make the, the refrigerator box into a clubhouse and we could paint on it. Just, yeah, the, the stoop was this really flexible space. Yeah. We also would venture forth as like a little posse of kids from the community. You know, we'd go to Coney Island as a group. You know, we'd t- get on the train wow. and travel together. On the F train. Like, yeah. F train. Like, at 10 years old, we, you know, if we were really adventurous, we'd go up to Times Square, be really scared, and then get on the train and come back home. <laughs> and we'd go, you know, we'd go to Central Park, and, we, and we'd go to Prospect Park, and, and, and the village, we just had a very d- d- different relationship 
to New York City than I think kids to to today. And I think a lot of that really changed with the disappearance of Eaton Pates um, or Pats, the yeah. kid in, in Soho who was on his way to school and just disappeared. At 7.55 last Friday morning, Julie Pat says she took her son downstairs. She came back up and watched from this fire escape as he passed down West Broadway toward the bus stop where a group of other children and parents were waiting. She never dreamed he didn't get on that bus, not until 4 o'clock in the afternoon when he failed to return home. It, it, it's, it's so fascinating. It's like you can... Um, that's the demarcation between the moment when um, New York felt dangerous as it was, it felt safe um, because it was a community and then that was a line where we thought oh but we can't trust the community and it doesn't you know I'm, I'm raising my my children in the house that I grew up in and they don't have the same relationship to the community that I had you know and I don't yeah. they don't they don't roam you know my, my son is now 11 COVID has really altered everything but he was just beginning he was just beginning to sort of flex his independence Mm -hmm. and wander the other thing is that there was a real divide between brooklyn and manhattan you know brooklyn manhattan was the city and for those of us who grew up in brooklyn we were considered to be incredibly provincial it was a bridge and tunnel there were people on my block when i was growing up who even when i was in college had never been to manhattan (laughs) And we live like, and we live one stop away. It's not like we're out in, in Bensonhurst. You can walk, you can walk the, the bridge, but Manhattan Bridge, and you're there. They're, but they're literally. It had a very yeah. small time vibe mm-hmm. um, that doesn't exist anymore because now Br- Brooklyn is hip. But we also took enormous pride in where we came from. You know, you think about how Spike Lee really owned his being mm-hmm. a Brooklyn Knight. And we really... His brand. Yeah. His brand. But that was all of our brand. It's like what we had, what mm-hmm. bonded us was that we lived in this place that was a little bit tough, that was regional. You know, we had accents that were slightly different. We, you know, we had more of an immigrant sensibility, working class sensibility, and we really um, clung, clung to that. And so when you went to the village, it just felt very different. Yeah. And was there ever a time when you felt dan- that danger was lurking around you or that you were in danger as a kid? It, you know, it was New York in the 70s and 80s. It was very different than the New York it is right now. I mean, the city was undergoing an enormous financial crisis that was affecting mm-hmm. every aspect uh, of the city, you know, from from the transit system, the educational system, to just the way in which your garbage was picked up and your um, streets were swept. And um, our neighborhood, when we were growing up, was was a high-crime neighborhood. There was a lot of prostitution. And, you know, I remember even um, in, like, in the mid-'70s and late-'70s, there was an article in the Daily News about, like, the hot points of prostitution. And I was really shocked that, like, the corner of my block was one of them. No kidding. No, but but you do. But you saw. Oh yeah, of course. Well, of course you saw it. it. I mean, there was so much. Mm -hmm. You know, you walked down Nevin Street. It just was like the corridor. It was kind of like um, Eleventh Avenue used to be in 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 Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, truckers just yeah, truckers just knew that this is the space that that you 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 travel. But but um, our house was robbed eight times. 
No when I was growing up. That's Twice when I was there. Once when my brother and I were sleeping, my parents... Twice when you were in the house? Twice when I was uh, um, in the house. Um, w- once when my brother and I were sleeping, my parents had gone someplace. And they and it was it was just after Christmas because they were all the, the Christmas gifts. And, and someone had climbed through mm-hmm. the... I will know. Yeah. You know, they had climbed through the climbed down the fire escape, which is in the back of the house. Climbed through my parents' bedroom window, and my brother and I were actually in uh, in my parents' bed. Um, and one of the men um, said to me when I awakened, he's like, "Shh, little girl," and he's like, "Go back to sleep." And I actually went back to sleep. <laughs> And I remember when my parents got home and they awakened us and they're like, what happened? And I was like, well, a man climbed in the window. He told me to go back to sleep. And they ended up like taking all of my father's hi-fi equipment and the Christmas gifts. You know, they just kind of cleaned us out. That said, it's like as a kid, you just knew that at some point you would get mugged and someone would take your, your, what we called your train pass or your bus pass or your hat or, you know, they'd rifle in your pockets and take your 25 cents so it didn't feel yeah. like such a big deal. Right. It's just something that happened. Okay, so those are the kinds of dangers kids like Lynn had to watch out for in New York at that time. Street-level crimes that could sometimes come in through the window. Other times, though, a very different kind of danger entered a family story. Not in the form of crime, but the stealing of one's own health and livelihood. When I was about 12 years old and I was trying to remember it, Exactly when it happened, I was my my father was carrying some slate with one of his friends, and his friend tripped, and the slate fell into my fa- father's um, um, abdomen. You know, he fell back. It hurt, but he was fine. And I have such a vivid, specific memory of us going to Prospect Park after that and playing frisbee, like just running and him diving. And then when he came home that night, he complained of being pain, and then he didn't move for two years. And, oh I, you know, he ended up being in the hospital for a period of time. He had some reconstructive surgery and was finally able to, to walk. You know, he shrank a couple of inches. Um, and, but but it, it, it really, it, it, it was devastating for the family. You know, my mother was a school teacher. You know, she was paying a mortgage on the brownstone. Granted, it's not what it, it was because they, they they paid very little for this house at the time. But still, it was a staggering cost for someone like her. At the time, both of my, my brother and I were at school. We were going to St. Anne's, which um, is not the St. Anne's of, of today, but it was still sort of a, a private... Um, it's a private school in Brooklyn Heights, right? And we had scholarships, and so she wasn't paying... A, a ton, mm-hmm. but still, it just was just a little too much for it to survive, and we just our lives changed. My mother had to take a second job. You know, she was working day and night to um, help us go get through the moment. I switched from um, private to public school, right. and it just you know I I still think about those hard times. In one of my my memories that sticks with me because my mother was working day and night, and so um, I'm often. We'd come home and she wasn't able to, to, to cook dinner. And so we ended up eating for a period of maybe two years 
our all of our meals at this restaurant called Steve's, which was a Greek diner run by this flamboyant guy named Steve who always wore like a baby blue suit and he greeted you. <laughs> you know, and we'd have like our hamburger and our french fries and we knew all of the, yeah. the, the waitresses who still had bouffants yeah. with ca- ca- cotton candy and who were smoking as they were serving. But they were our family. <laughs> you know, these yeah, women right. and I and I still have this this wonderful memory of when my mother would finally exhausted be finished um steve would always bring her like a rob roy and he'd say there you go my love <laughs> and she'd like drink Perfect. <laughs> and she'd drink her rob roy and then have a second and then we'd go home yeah there's a character in your your 2017 pulitzer prize winning play sweat stan yeah. who has an injury from work. Right. And you see its effect on him. He's sort of the bartender at the at the gathering spot, spot there. And I, I thought about the connection between him and your dad because you saw the consequences of that yeah. in someone's life. But you're a kid. You're coming into adolescence and your dad is sort of stuck there. That's It must have cha- it changed you too. I'm it gu- cha- changed me. I, I think that one of the things that it made me as a worker is that mm-hmm. from the time I was 12 years old, I began like working like a maniac. I babysat. I always had my own money because I knew in that moment I couldn't ask my mother for money because she didn't have it. Right. And so... Yeah. And those if, are the ages where you need it as a kid. And, and where you, you need it. If you go just, to movies and go to... Your, yeah. And so I began babysitting. You know, I, I, um, I babysat for, um, for um, a woman who was recently divorced and she had three little boys and she still was young at the time and went to have a life and... And so um, I ended up babysitting them for them maybe four nights a week, and she'd stay out really late, and it was great. <laughs> you know, she was my source of income. And then when I was in high school, I got a job at the Phoenix newspaper, which was a local Brooklyn new, um, cir- circular, which had a liberal bent and, you know, this grizzled old editor named um, Mike Armstrong, who, like, ran it like an old newspaper man and we had manual typewriters and we hit our deadlines it was like click 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 um and i ended up working at the phoenix all through um um, much of high school and through college and then i switched from the phoenix to the villager which 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 he also owned which was its sister paper in the village voice and i and that for me was really formative just in terms of my identity as a writer and my interest in research yeah. and journalism and um, and how to immerse yourself in a culture that's different than your own. And I all think that stems from having to go to work and having to have a certain level of agency at a very young age. You know, I felt like I just don't want to be a burden. And I wasn't. Right. I mean, I... I just have made my way in the world, and I feel an immense pride in that, like never, not ever having to be dependent. Lynn was anything but dependent as a teenager in Brooklyn. While working, she also had to commute a long way to school each day. We're talking the A train, the subway, all the way from her neighborhood to the High School of Music and Art in Harlem, way up in Manhattan. From there, she went to Brown University and the Yale School of Drama, and when she returned to live and work in New York City, it was in Manhattan, not in her childhood home in Brooklyn. That was the plan, anyway. Uh, one thing I want to f- uh, fast forward to is, you know, you, you begin writing plays in the 90s after working at Amnesty International, and you're sort of getting your feet, white, feet wet as a playwright, and then something happens, you move home. 
Yes. You know, your, your trajectory was out of the city, but then you come back to that brownstone on Dean Street. And what brings you back there is that your mother is very ill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you talked about this. She had, was suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease, and, and you were pregnant at the time. And I'm trying to think about what it was like for you to be caring for your mother, the one who had nurtured you in that space, as you were getting set to become a mother. And just sort of what, what that was like in terms of your own path, your own identity. It was an impossible moment when I r- returned home. And um, when I left Brooklyn, um, which I left um, really in 1986, um, at a moment when New York was at the height of the AIDS crisis and the crack epidemic, and it just felt... Um, dark in ways that my my spirit spirit couldn't manage i thought i'm just not going to come back i'm going to land someplace else i want a um an apartment with lots of light that's far away from where i i grew up and i ended up living on the upper west side and then moving you know to 110th street where i had a beautiful view of st john the divine in in a rent stabilized pre-war building and i thought I've hit the jackpot. <laughs> There's no way. It's I'm a promised land. It's yeah. a promised land. Like, this is it. Like, this big, solid, airy apartment. Um, and I had just le- left working at Amnesty International and trying to figure out what, what, what kind of life I could make as and an artist. I had recently married. I was pregnant. Um, and my mother was diagnosed, as you mentioned, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And she called me one day um, and she said, I don't think I can go go this alone. And as you know, it's such a, it's such an insidious, impossible um, disease, which robs you slowly of your ability to move any of the muscles in your body, you know, and eventually, you know, your throat closes up and you can't breathe. And so I realized I Mm. I just, you know, I I love my mother. And even though I don't want to move back to Brooklyn, we decided to move back and we did a slight renovation and had to the very difficult task of asking the tenants who had literally lived in the apartment for like 40 years. I mean, they were there almost as long as my parents were in the apartment. And I I remember it was three sisters who'd moved from, I want to say it was North Carolina when they were like 18, 19, 20. (laughs) And so they had grown Mm -hmm. up in this house and only one one was left, Carrie and her, her, her husband. And we had to ask them to leave. It was 19... 97 and they were paying $400 rent <laughs> and I knew they're never going to find that again you know have a two-bedroom no. apartment for $400 I mean fortunately for them they had saved enough money from the low rent to actually buy a place so it has a happy ending in, in that case but mm-hmm. I, I moved I we moved back and I just you know it, it was hard because we're living in a place and trying to renovate it and make it livable for us while I was caring for my mother who literally need 24-hour care. And then I had my baby. And so I was changing my mother's diaper and changing my baby's diaper and just under a great deal of stress. And so, and, 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 and so we moved back and it, it ended up being the right choice and um, the best choice and we've now been here. Um, my mother died in 1997. Since then, and we've really built a new community. And the community, of course, in even the 23 years that we've been here, keeps rolling over and shifting sure, and but reconfiguring. But we're here, as is um, our neighbors um, who live directly across the street, 
who also grew up in the house. It's like, we're the two African-American mm-hmm. families standing. You know, we, we're like, hey, we see each other. And there's this real connection <laughs> and bond. Like, we're not going to sell our homes yeah. like everyone else did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, and you've talked, Lynn, specifically about, you know, the seeds of your playwriting and how in some ways your playwriting uh, has its origins in, in the gaze of your mother. Your mother's gaze, I think, mm-hmm. is the way that you describe it. And that for you it was a looking glass right. as a kid. And I want to just pause there and ask you about that gaze and sort of that looking glass and what, what you meant to convey by that and what, what that gaze meant to you. And when I, I'm talking about my mother's gaze, I'm really speaking about all of the unspoken in the, you know, the experiences of black women in America, you know, going further back than my mother from to my, my, my grandmother who, who, were women of a specific era who weren't able because of circumstances to fully actualize. And they have so much they experienced and so much complexity which they didn't articulate. And I think that my practice really stems from my desire to want to give voice to what got unsaid. And, And then when you kind of put that in the story of your mother's life, which you know, just for context for people, you were only in your early 30s at this time. This is right. very young to lose a parent yeah. and, 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 and really hard. And also to see the way that she, th- that she died through, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is so painful. I'm thinking about the voices you talked about before in the house and how animated and full it was and how active she was and that gaze and how in the end, as you were saying, you're sort of left only with that gaze, with someone who's dying from that mm-hmm. disease. The voice goes. And so what it was like to see her go sort of from that full embodiment of life to losing her voice, yeah, which I mean, was so important to your ear as a kid. Well, it's really painful to watch someone who you love so much and who, and who, who lived a very robust, animated life lose the ability to move and eventually lose the ability to speak. And she had this incredibly rich, beautiful voice. It's like one of my the favorite aspects with my mother and I think it's what made her so popular is that she had this this lovely laugh that just came from deep down that just lit up a room and she had um, the voice of an actress even though she never acted she just had an instrument that 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 had a a beautiful quality Um, and eventually um, before she died the only thing that she could use was her eyes and I and we'd work with um, an eye chart, and it was really laborious for her to, to sort of blink out in a sentence. And I remember one of the last things that she um, blinked out was that she loved my daughter Ruby. She just said, "I love you" to her, and it just—I mean—I mm-hmm. remember after she did, I had to drop the chart and like weep. And she's like, "No, no, no!" Like trying to say, "Lift it up, lift it up." Um, and I didn't have have the str- strength, but it was um, in those m- moments. Um, um, very hard to navigate the emotional space that's requ- required when you're slowly letting go of all of the parts of someone that you love. And it's really fascinating. You talk about someone's relationship to the house. Um, my mother had wanted to die in the home. And in the moment that she was dying, I sort of panicked and I made the choice to call the ambulance. And when they arrived, I'm like, you you can't have her. I'm going to keep her. They're like, now that we're here, we're going to have to take her. And so it was like this tug of war. And they took her to the hospital. And I, because I was her health proxy, made the decision not to have her um, 
resuscitated. And strangely enough, she was supposed to die in an hour and she held on for eight hours until all of her um, friends and family could get to the hospital. And the very last person to arrive, which was 18 hours later, was her mother. My mother was an only child. And literally the moment my grandmother stepped into the room and we formed this beautiful circle, we said, you know, the Lord's Prayer, and she literally um, very peacefully died. We returned from the hospital maybe an hour after that, and we walked into the house, and the telephone rang, and it was a friend of hers, um, Shirley, who she hadn't spoken to probably in 10 years, and I picked up the telephone, and um, Shirley says, is your mother okay? And I'm like, why do you ask? She said, I literally... Um, was standing in my kitchen. I turned around. And I saw your mother there. And I said, what did she say? She said, it's okay. And I thought, oh, that's what I needed to hear because I was feeling so much guilt over having made this yeah. decision to rip her body out of this house and have her have a, a death that she didn't want in the hospital. And then moments after she said it was okay, our boiler, which was the most ancient boiler in New York City, it's like when exploded. It just went boom. And the entire house shook. And this fissure like ran all the way up through the house. And then the wall strangely began to weep. And so all this water, so all the way down. And I was like, wow, it's like a, this is a Marquez moment, like a magical realism moment in which yeah. my mother is speaking to, to us. What a force. What a force. And she was the house. And she was, she was the house. She was the house. Like somehow she made her presence known and that her connection with this space was so deep. And intense that she that just left, you know, with a bang. that you have written about this in some way. There's a play, uh, Emperor Breathes, The Emperor and the Scribe, oh. about sort of about this dynamic and, and, and your mother, but you haven't released it to the world yet. No, I, I haven't. I'm wondering, it's sort of about that, and what, what about that particular story that you've told is leaving you with that feeling that it's not ready, and, and how will you know when you are ready? Well, you know, it's, it, it's when I was working on... The Emperor's Breathe, it's really during, you know, I'm trying to even remember because that whole time was such a blur because I was like a new mother and I was dealing with like all of, you know, all of the biggest emotions that one experiences in life, but at once. Um, And so I can't, can't remember whether I was writing it while my mother was dying or whether I wrote it just after, but, but the play was still infused with all of what I was feeling, which was a you know, the complicated emotions that you have when a parent dies, you know, it's, you know, it's despair, it's liberation, it's, 
Um, it's it's all you know. It's it's guilt. It's all those things that you have to reconcile, and that's just part of the grieving process. And so I did what I do, which is to pour that energy into um, into writing. And so I created this play, which was called The Emperor and the Scribe. And it should have been abundantly clear to me that it was about me and my mother, <laughs> but, it, yeah. but it, it wasn't. And I had the experience like a year, maybe it was a year and a half, after my mother died, I was invited to go to a conference. At, I believe it was the University of Michigan, or maybe it was the University of Wisconsin. Like, it was on a lake, um, and very cold. And it was a conference on African American playwrights. And they said, "Do you want to read a new play?" And I'm like, "I have a new play. It hasn't been shared." And so we rehearsed that particular piece. And I remember thinking, "Oh God, why did I even come?" This feels like it's premature and I'm not really ready to re-enter this, this realm and to be working mm-hmm. on my writing because I'm still healing. And um, we, we read the play and it, you know, it read rather well. And um, afterwards, I had said to the moderator, it's like, you know, I really just don't want to talk about why I wrote this play because it's, I, I, it came out of such a, a deep personal space that I think it will be painful and she put me on stage by myself and she like handed me a, a microphone um, and there were like 500 people and this light was shining on me. <laughs> and the first question she asked is, why did you write this play? And I remember being so frustrated and angry that I burst into tears as I went to explain why I wrote it. And I realized, oh, I really haven't mourned in this way. And I sobbed and I couldn't, I literally couldn't stop sobbing. And there were 500 people Mm. watching me. And really recently um, I was somewhere and um, a woman said, you probably don't remember me, but I was the woman who literally climbed out of the audience, went on the stage and I helped you off. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And then I promptly put that play in um, a box and um, never looked at it again. By the time we spoke, Lynn had lived at least three different acts in her Brooklyn Brownstone. There was the little girl listening in the kitchen. There was the caretaker for her mother as she lay dying. Then there was the Lynn who lived with her dad for many years before he died much more recently. And then there's the Lynn of today, of now, the mother, professor, and playwright living and working and raising a family during this terrible long pandemic. And I was curious to know how she keeps all of these selves around in a house that's at once a bustling, very much alive place, and on the other, a museum, an inheritance from her mother and father. Where do you, in your house, but also in your mind, go to commune with these people and these voices, these voices that were so shaping, but you sort of given us a clue, which is you do it through your imagination, it sounds like. Yeah, I do it through versus imagination. A, versus a place. I, I, you know, I, I, I think I don't really anymore hear their voices in the way that one might imagine, um, but I do periodically visit them in photo albums. Like every once in a while, it's mm-hmm. like, I just want to see my grandmother, Weibo, you know, who, yeah. you know, had the spicy, irreverent wit and... I kind of miss that flavor in my life and I'll just go and look at her and, you know, in her bathing suit holding a cocktail and I think, oh, there you are. I'm so happy to see mm. you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and all those memories will flood back and it's the same with, with my mother 
And, um, you know, more recently with my, my father, who I actually visit more because that, that wound is, is fresher. Yeah. It's only a few, few and years. In, in, and because I lived with him um, for 23 years in ways that most adults don't live with their parents, and he came with us on all of our vacations, he just occupies much bigger space in my life, in my memory, than my mother who died when she was 62, and my grandmother who died, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, and I, I find as I go through life, you know, I'm now, I'll be 45 in February, and I lost my grandfather when I was four, my grandmother who was very close to at 15, my Uncle Ed who is really the reason why I do what I do. I love talking to him as a kid when I was in my 20s. And I find it very painful to feel my brain over time increasingly unable to access their voices in full. Yes. I can get a I word, can. I can get a phrase, but I can't get sentences and paragraphs anymore. Yeah. And it's, pain- it's painful to feel your brain Yes. Letting go in that way or fracturing. I find that very painful. It is hard. I, I, you know, I had described earlier sort of the resonance of my mother's voice. And I can talk about it, but I can't really, really hear it anymore. It's like I know what it was and I can hold on to that knowing, but mm-hmm. I can't hear it. And that's hard. Yeah. I can still hear my father's voice. Um, and uh, strangely, I can hear my grandmother's voice just because she talks so much. <laughs> it will take me like years to get her out of my head. <laughs> it was spicy too, you said. It was right? spicy, so. yeah. I mean, she just was like, she was like, yeah. You know, she'd call me like every day I was in college, my grandmother would call me. That's beautiful. I mean, it, it is something to think about too, that, that playwriting itself can be this act. As a child, you don't really think about yourself being part of living history. You know, particularly as an African-American, because for so long we didn't place a lot of value on our personal archive. And so I wish that I had listened and engaged with much more intention when I was young. You know, certainly if I could get into a time castle and and, and go back, I, I think that I would absorb in a very different way. Uh, there's this... It's really sort of wonderful and sad um, story. My my father grew up um, on a block just around the corner from Mount Morris Park, which is now Marcus Garvey. I saw that. Um, yeah. Park, and um, for decades, um, every summer, all of the old neighborhood, like all of the gang members, would gather together in Mount Morris Park in this one section and, you know, they'd drink and listen to music and, and reminisce. And um, it was always like a large um, c- a collection of, of men. And I remember one day, because my, my father died when he was 89, he said he took the, the train, you know, the IRT up to Harlem and he went to the park and he sat on the park bench where they all met. And he said he sat there for two hours and he realized that he was the last man standing. And he said it just was heartbreaking. And, and you know, you think about sort of mm. the passing of moments or community. And I thought with that went all of that collective knowledge and that wisdom of what Harlem was. And I wish that I had had the wherewithal to doc- document those gatherings because there's probably an astonishing um, group of, of, of men that were there and, you know, intellectual capital <laughs> that was lost. Um, I'm hyper aware of the necessity, particularly as an African-American woman, as a black woman, 
of of preserving the archive because mm-hmm. as a child I didn't have access to the archive in the same way because my grandparents just shed so many of their things and didn't you know didn't think really think about what would the next generation want or what is really necessary to preserve it's like I, I still there's a, a story my grandmother um Dor- Dorothy who lived in Harlem who was my father's mother and there was a period mm-hmm. of time a long period of time in which she worked for as a, a domestic you know and, and 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 she went back to school actually in her 50s and 1960s to become a nurse at Harlem Hospital but she worked as a d- domestic and she was working for an elderly white woman who um who who was on the verge of death. And she said, Dorothy, you know, you've worked very hard for me. And I really want you to want, I want you to have something. And this woman had all these Renoirs and all of these beautiful things. And Dor- my grandmother said, you know, there's that Renoir that I really always love and covet. And she's like, Dorothy, it's yours. And the, the there was another woman who worked, who was the cook. And she said, oh, I also like that painting. And my grandmother said, oh, you know what? You take it. And it just, for me, points out how my grandmother, in all of her her sort of homespun wisdom, didn't understand the value of certain things. And Mm -hmm. I think the way in which she treated the Renoir is the way in which she treated her life. Mm. Yeah. And when I saw her... In the 1940 census, because I was looking for your dad, and I saw there he was in Harlem, like you mentioned. Yeah, he lived. He, he lived with, with my grandma. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was li- living with his mother Dorothy and his grandmother Ida. Yes. And I realized that oh, Ida's from Florida. Ida's name is Crump. Yes. And the the family name in Crumbs from the Table of Joy, one of your early plays, is Crump. Yeah. And I realized this is this is Lynn at work. She's sort of creating characters and stories around a missing archive, but she has some things. She has a name. She has places. She's places. But then he, there you are. But yeah. it's, it's, it's your way of your way of creating an archive is through drama, is through imagination. It's a very fascinating kind of mix of fact and, and imagination. Well, it's also a way of keeping, keeping them uh, alive. Um, I, yeah. My, for right. my, my grandmother, both of my grandmothers, who my, my grandmother Dor- Dorothy died in 1997, and when she died, um, you know, she had no friends left alive. And so we weren't able to really give her the funeral that she had wanted because there was no one mm-hmm. to come but our There's immediate no. family. And so we sort of gathered to say goodbye amongst ourselves. And the same was true of my, my other grandmother, Waipo, who was such a social butterfly, but also because she died when she was so old, her community was gone. And um, I never gave them the funerals that I felt their lives deserved. And I think in some ways, um, as I move forward, is that I want to write, a write for them and about them in ways that will become those living memorials. That, you know, it, yeah. it's better than a headstone is that they will live in three dimensions in ways in which I can conjure them and keep them alive.
last question I want to ask you, and I ask every guest this, I end every interview the same way, is I go to that <laughs> great Brooklyn poet, Walt Whitman, uh, and Leaves of Grass song of myself, because this is a show about place. Right, and who and, didn't, who and didn't live, for our, and he didn't live, Walt Whitman lived fairly close to here. Yeah, and, you know, thinking about communing with spirits, um, I want to read these passages from Song of Myself and then ask you a question on the backside of it. Mm -hmm. So Walt says, um, I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And Lynn, we've talked about sort of how we try to reach back to the past and, and hear those voices and hold on to them. But I'm thinking about someone either in your own family or maybe a student of drama, 50, 100, 200 years from now, who discovers Lynn Nottage and her work and wants to commune with you and your spirit and, and comes to New York, comes to Borum Hill, comes to Dean Street, right? And it's just looking around and thinking, where can I stand? Where can I go? Where can I be? to commune with that spirit of Lenotage, where will I find her? Where, where would you tell someone roaming the city, looking for you in your hometown, where would you tell them to go to feel you? I, I think that, you know, 100 years from now, if someone was looking for me and still somehow wanted to connect with a perspective that perhaps would have been mine, if they sat on the stoop, and they looked at um, the pear tree, which I planted, which, you know, began as a sapling, which is now, you know, still in its, wow. its teenage years. <laughs> um, and that's beautiful and blossoming, but a hundred years from now, I imagine that tree would still be there. Mm. And so they would see a little of what I had planted, you know, a little of what I had hoped would be part of the textures of the community. And they would see something that hopefully had grown quite beautiful and majestic and that's rooted in um, a, a space that I helped build. You know, there was a, a, a <laughs> there's just like, you know, a space for it. There was a patch of dirt. And when I moved back, I thought we're gonna have a tree, that I want a tree huh. there. And then, you know, it took a year, but finally the Parks Department, one summer afternoon, drove up without saying anything, planted that tree and drove off. <laughs> Lynn Nottage, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know it went long, but I just felt, you know, I, I just felt so so uh, absorbed in the conversation. So well, thank you for that. I know you're really busy. Well, thank, um, yes. It's such a pleasure. You have, you're an amazing storyteller. I knew it would be a special time with you. Well, thank you for allowing me to travel back and revisit things that I haven't thought about in years. I, you know, it just filled me with, with a lot of joy. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, please visit our website at yourhometown.org, where you can find our past episodes and illustrations and maps that bring each guest's hometown vividly to life. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app and on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, please check out the show's New York City series page, including information on live events on the Museum of the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now I'd like to thank the wonderfully talented team that brings so much joy and passion to making your hometown with me, especially our executive producer, Robert Krolwich, art director, Nick Regg, 
editor and sound designer Otis Streeter, composer and performer Sterling Steffen, and our researcher Shaquille Khan. Our branding and website design is by Tama Creative, and our social media team is led by Cure and Jessica Sainbert. A special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. Now, none of this would have been possible without the Rockefeller Brothers Fund or our other financial supporters, and they have my deepest thanks for their commitment to this series. Until next time, thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace, and everywhere is somewhere. <laughs>